Welcome to Attached, a platform for adding breadth and depth to everyday living. I'm Yaakov Danishevsky, and this is the conversation series focused on my book. In each episode, I invite a special guest to discuss the topic of a particular chapter and how it relates to our lives. Welcome to another Conversations episode. I'm joined here today by Professor Yoshua November, who I'm really delighted to have this conversation with. Uh, Yoshua is someone whose poetry I came across uh, really pretty recently, actually. I was really, really taken by a poem that he wrote, uh, uh, an award-winning poem called Two Worlds Exist, uh, and reached out to him and made this connection. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. Thank you. My pleasure. So we're going to be discussing the ideas in, in, in the book attached, of course, and in particular, chapter 10 of the book, where I discuss the challenges of maintaining a long-lasting relationship uh, in a way that still continues to have meaning, even as it lasts uh, throughout throughout time. Uh, of course, it's natural that when something initially starts, there's more excitement, there's more of a of an energy to it, and over time, it can be challenging uh, to to keep that going and to find the meaning in the relationship. And so, in these two chapters, ten and eleven, we're focusing on ten. I discuss different ways to try and maintain a meaningful relationship that can persist and have and have longevity. So, I had asked you to look at a few of the different chapters and pick one that interested you. I'm curious to hear why this one in particular got your attention. Um, uh, I think it's a very important topic. Uh, the idea of excitement waning and how to deal with it. In fact, I think that that is actually one of the topics of, of, of art. Artists are always trying to capture how the sublime is in the ordinary and in the average everyday moment. And people tend to look for excitement and people tend to get habituated and they want something new. And then maybe they abandon a relationship that they're in and they fault that relationship and they feel that it's inferior or deficient in some kind of way. But perhaps uh, what's necessary is to kind of uh, discern the, the wonderment or the extraordinary within, within the ordinary, within the everyday. Um, and I, I was fascinated by the um, strategies that the chapter laid out in terms of how to deal with um, boredom, lack of excitement. So the chapter is about relationships. It's about relationships with God, a Jew's relationship with God, or anybody's relationship with God, and maybe spousal relationships, and how in a spousal relationship or in a relationship with God, there's always kind of ebb and flow. There's moments of excitement and enjoyment and passion, and then there's moments that are more ordinary, uh, maybe bore, boring, or even uh, disappointing or, or off-putting. And I thought it was fascinating um, how you relate that the strategy to deal with that is, is what you call scaffolding, to um, institute or to put into practice certain routines where a person can um, make a schedule, let's say, to date, or even to, just to, to put up the pot of morning coffee and, and switch off turns for that. And even though these things seem kind of mundane or even prescribed to, to say that we have to uh, meet on this day, we have to have a date on this night, and, and it seems kind of um, lacking in romance, lacking in excitement, um, it seems like these things counterintuitively work. The scaffolding somehow works. Somehow doing these ordinary routines, although it seems unglorious, is actually what 
breathes new life into relationships. So I, I thought that was fascinating. And, and going beyond the spouse relationship, you link that to how in the relationship with a, with a person trying to serve the divine, um, they also encounter a lot of routines, daily prayers, all kinds of laws, and so on and so forth, and how these these laws and these routines also form the scaffolding in the relationship between a uh, person and God. And counterintuitively, it seems to work there also. So I thought that's that's really fascinating. Um, and so I wanted to read a poem that maybe could help uh, explore the maybe the mysticism of why that works. Why does scaffolding work? You mentioned um, in the book, in the chapter, that a mitzvah is a command, but it's also said to be a tzavts of a chibur, it connects, it connects a person. It doesn't just mean command, it also means connect. So it creates this bridge and this kind of bond. Um, so I want to just kind of look at some of the, of the mysticism behind it. I guess as a kind of intro, you might think about how um, sometimes... Though there's things that are not ex- as exciting, they're not as um, romantic or glorious, but something profound could still be happening, even though we don't process it, even though we don't register it, even though we might not feel enamored and excited, something very deep could be happening. In fact, something so deep that we, we can't feel it, we can't experience it. Um, another point, just before I get into the poem, is that in the beginning of the chapter, you quoted uh, the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe is the first Chabad Rebbe, and you quoted how uh, he speaks about how we want to feel, uh, uh, I'll just use the English, we feel our heart burning as a flame with desire and longing and passion for God. So that's very emotional, very inspired kind of experience um, that we all want and we all need in our in our relationship, I think. Famously, the Alter Rebbe also said that I don't want anything. Ich will garnished. I don't want anything. Uh, Ich will nicht dein Gan Eden, I don't want your Gan Eden. Ich will not dein Olam Haba, I don't want your Olam Haba. Ich will not dich allein, I only want you. So what does that mean when he says, I, I don't want Gan Eden, I don't want Olam Haba, I only want you? Um, in Hasidus, uh, the terminology that's often used, Chabad Hasidus, is that there's God's essence, which is called Atzmus, to have experience of God, connect to God's essence, and then there's Giluyim, revelations, that which we feel. So that which we feel is exciting, and romantic and glorious. Atzmus, to feel God's essence, is not something that registers high on the excitement scale, but it's to touch something very profound. I think that's linked to, to the idea of scaffolding. So let me just read a poem before I talk too much, and uh, and maybe the poem will be a kind of segue into, into this idea of things that are not always exciting actually leading to profundity in a relationship between God and the relationship between a person. So this poem is called The Infinitely Tall Rabbi Lectures on the Centrality of the Physical Deed. The physical deed kind of reminds me of these ordinary activities that you know you might set up, one person uh, put, setting up the coffee uh, in alternating days, um, similarly doing these ordinary activities that we all do in Judaism that are very prescribed. And I kind of created this persona called the Infinitely Tall Rabbi um, as a way of kind of talking about, about Hasidus. So the Infinitely Tall Rabbi lectures on the centrality of the physical deed. It's the coffee and cake set up before the mysticism class, not the mysticism itself. Like love expressed in covering your wife's carpool shift versus the intrigue of glimpsing her in the library stacks one snowy October evening, 20 years earlier. The physical gesture performed with the body 
is the only vessel that holds the divine. The universe, not a straight line, with top and bottom at opposite extremes, but like a circle. The beginning is wedged in the end. The physical hand, unzipping the velvet cloth and reaching into the tefillin bag, reaches into God's private essence. So that's the poem. I mean, if you want to discuss it a little bit or have some thoughts on it, but any observations or any really, questions? Really, I would most genuinely, I would want to just hear you read it again and like sit here okay. for half an hour without talking. <laughs> it's really, uh, really pretty enchanting. Um, is so much to say, but I, but I guess I, we can start wherever, wherever you'd like with that, with that poem. Okay, so I mean, the poem speaks about kind of what we, we talked about: how we all long for excitement and romance and energy in a relationship. Um, and sometimes we don't have that, uh, and, and things fall short. Um, maybe a, a good question to ask in those moments um, is not, look, what am I getting out of the relationship, uh, but what am I giving to the relationship? Mm -hmm. Or um, how can I relate to this person in, in their deepest capacity, as opposed to me experiencing gratification from what they give me, how can I kind of connect to them? So in the poem, I talk about, uh, you know, a, a young man perhaps seeing his prospective wife in the library and thinking she's, you know, beautiful woman, and that's exciting for him. But that's not really a connection to her in the most profound way. It's kind of superficial. The real connection comes in this 20 years later, in this ordinary moment when he covers her carpool shift. That's kind of like a relationship to her as she is on her terms versus, you know, the excitement that he wants. Now, again, you, you can't ha have a relationship with no excitement, obviously. It, it, it will be a dry run and you can't sustain it. But I think that counterintuitively, you find that um, when you're humble in a relationship and you try to think about what can I give this person in the relationship, that ultimately uh, comes back to you. Not that you should be looking for that, but it does come back to you. Um, and your spouse feels your contributions and your humility. And then usually if it's a, it's a, a, a good person, he or she will reciprocate. And that's probably yeah. why the two parties got married to begin with. <laughs> I, I think it's also interesting because um, it's not like when a relationship goes sour or becomes stale, it's not like um, you're trying to reintroduce two people that don't know each other. These two people got married. They have an interest in each other. So they just need these activities to kind of bring out and re-fortify this connection that's already there. Mm -hmm. It's the same way, I think, in a relationship with, with God. Everybody has a soul. Soul in Chassidus is a part of God. It's naturally there always. You can kind of cover it up and put rust and, and cake it over with dirt by not practicing uh, things that will awaken it. But when you go back to pray, when you go back to do these routines, naturally, because the soul is a part of God and it longs for divinity, it will get excited through these routines. Not, you're not creating something new. You're just kind of reintroducing, I would say. Mm -hmm. So that's why maybe scaffolding seems unromantic and uh, boring, but it's probably just a, a method to, to uh, unpack what's already there. To, to yeah. reintroduce what's already there. Maybe. So I, I could think we could kind of think about this in a, in a few different ways. I think maybe in a sense, the way that I spoke about it in this chapter of the book is that the idea of scaffolding is that it, it kind of sets up the, hence the word scaffolding, it sets up the structure to, in, to, to allow the, the consistency and the stability 
of the mundane to be in place mm -hmm. so that the moments of deeper meaning and higher connection can kind of drop in naturally right, right, right. and counterintuitively the more that we have those prescribed those routine mundane scaffolding behaviors and rituals the more that those natural spontaneous moments will drop in but what i think which which i think is an important idea but i think what you're bringing out part of what i'm hearing you speak about is that there's another angle to it mm -hmm. which is not only the scaffolding as a means to an ends for when those more spontaneous enhanced moments drop in but that there's actually a way and i think this is what you began with through the lens of art that there's a way of looking at the mundane and in itself finding something that's more beautiful and more significant than we may have realized which is what i loved about the end of the poem for example with the tefillin bag so as a from observant male jew i put on tefillin six days a week for the past, you know, X number of years and God willing, you know, for a long time, it, it becomes a very mundane thing. And then yet the way that you captured it in, with those words, all of a sudden it's like a whole different, a whole different experience. And, and I think that's what you were saying a little bit about art as well, is that what the artist is doing is taking the very ordinary Sunday afternoon that you have a whole bunch of people by a pond, but then the way that they the way that they painted and the way that they depicted all of a sudden it becomes something exceptional even though it's actually something quite ordinary right yeah i agree i agree i i think i am taking a different angle and i'm saying that within the scaffolding itself scaffolding is not a means to an end but scaffolding holds something very profound i, I agree with that yeah um, i think that's and, really really amazing i'm curious if you could elaborate maybe a little bit on the divine the artistic process of like <laughs> how do how do we do that like let's let's yeah. just say for example i'd be i'd yeah. be really curious if you're if you're open to sharing this like what is the process for you of writing a poem huh. and how would that be kind of a mushal so to speak an, an analogy uh, or an instruction for how a person lives that sort of artistic life so to speak whether or not they're an artist but that they look at the mundane in their life and find a way to 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 see the 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 majesty within the mundane yeah i i think um maybe artists are naturally in tune to that i think maybe artists are often highly sensitive people and they um react to stimuli in the environment maybe um with more sensitivity and they kind of just I, I always think that artists kind of have this underlying sense of something wondrous in the in the ordinary and I, that's also reinforced, I think, by learning Hasidus, um, Hasidic thought. In, in the Tanya, which we were speaking about, um, the altar of his book, the Tanya, he, he raises an interesting point. He says that um, when we see a miracle, um, some kind of like a, a romantic, glorious, extraordinary moment, like the splitting of the sea, um, which, which is uh, obviously a, a profound moment. And we look upon that and we are wowed. We are awed by the, the majesty of that moment. Uh, nature has changed. God exists. Um, but he says that really that's actually a lesser um, level of divinity. When God performs a miracle, it's a lesser level of divinity than when he recreates the world every moment. The world is recreated every moment, according to, to Jewish thought. We say it every day in our, in our prayers. God is recreating the world every second, and not just every day, but tamid, always. So the world is, is brought into existence, uh, from absolute nothingness. 
And the Alzheimer's says that's a, a greater miracle than splitting the sea. Because to take uh, nothingness, to take something that doesn't exist whatsoever and then recreate it, to create a physical reality out of nothingness, is a far greater miracle than taking a sea that already exists and it, it naturally flows um, a certain pattern. And now he's just taking the pattern of something that pre exists and changing that pattern. That's a lesser miracle than bringing something out of nothingness. So the ordinary moment is really the divine is more present, so to speak, in the ordinary moment, more so than even a miracle. Um, but to get back to, to the poem, I, I, I spoke about uh, and I cited a line from, from the Sefer Yitzira, which says, the beginning is wedged in the end, and the end is wedged in the beginning. Um, the idea is um, really that the highest divinity, God's essence, what we call an atzmos, is actually most accessible or most present in the physical ordinary act, which in our case would be like the mitzvah. Um, a good way to think about it maybe is like a circle. In a circle, you, you have, like at one point, you have God's essence, and then you travel away from God's essence, you have all the spiritual worlds, there's various four spiritual worlds, and then at the end of the circle, you come back to the lowest physical world, this was called a sia, and that again touches atzimus, touches God's essence. So God's essence is actually most rooted and most connected to the physicality of the world. Surprisingly, counterintuitively, Chabad Chassidus at least argues that um, the most profound divinity is in the physicality of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why when a person does this mitzvah, this act um, of putting on tefillin, for example, they will be touching God's essence. Um, the, the, be- the beginning, God's essence, the highest, the highest spirituality is in the end, is in the physicality. Similarly, in, in the Lechadodi prayer, we say on Friday nights, uh, we say that, Sof Now that could be talking about creation, Shabbos is the last day of creation, but another way that the mystics look at it is that Sof Maisa, the physical act, the mitzvah, was was first in thought, was first mm-hmm. the thing that God imagined. The highest divinity, the, the first thought, the original stirring, is connected to Sof Maisa, the physical act. So that's that's the, the way that it is in the divine realm, in the, in the relationship with God and, and us. Now, of course, we might say, I don't feel anything sometimes when I put on tefillin. But th- that might be a testament to the fact that you're experiencing essence. God's mm-hmm. essence is unknowable. The Zohar says of the God's essence, no thought can grasp it. So when we do a mitzvah, you're connecting to God's essence. This is his will. This is what he wants. You don't feel anything. Maybe because God is just being his unknowable self, and you're connecting to that unknowable self. When you feel something and you're excited about something, that's the divine coming down into your finite vessels. That's what's called a contraction or, 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 it's, or it's symptom. And that means it's kind of almost like, a, you might even call it compromised divinity, divinity um, tailored to what we can hold or feel or experience. So sometimes, counterintuitively, in the act that we don't feel something, something very profound is actually occurring. And I think that's also true, maybe you could extend that to relationship, spousal relationship. It said that um, the everything in this world stems from a spiritual source. So marriage between a husband and wife stems from the marriage between God and the Jewish people, God and humanity. So if this dynamic is true when you talk about a, a mitzvah, an uh, ordinary act that God is commanding, um, then perhaps it's also true in a marriage, in a relationship. There's something profound and essential in doing this ordinary act for the other person, even if it's not exciting. 
it holds something that is, is, is very profound. It holds essence as opposed to giloi, uh, essence as opposed to revelation. Hmm. A little heavy, sorry, it's too heavy. <laughs> No, no, it's uh, it's it's a lot to think about. It's it's. I actually, I think that if I remember correctly, <laughs> who knows? But I I think that in chapter uh, thirteen of the book, I discuss this in with regards to doubt. That almost mm-hmm. when a person is unsure of God, they may actually be connecting with an even more mm-hmm. true presence of God than mm-hmm. than when they think they know God, right? Which is based on this this from the Alter Rebbe. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm. Can I? Can I? Go back to what I asked you before. Oh also. yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious if I can, if I can ask you to share the process of writing a poem. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, poetry is mysterious to me. I always feel like I'm kind of just starting from scratch, even though I may have written in many poems. Um, I, I think it really depends on the poem. Each poem is, it's like its own world. There's a lot of poems. Uh, maybe my favorite poems that originate in, um, I would say they originate in an image. I see an image, and the image is striking, and I know that I will um, write about that. And then the kind of image cooks for a while in, 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 in my mind, and then when I sit down to write it, it comes out very quickly and very smoothly. Mm-hmm. Then there's other poems where you kind of just have to have to manufacture and you keep working on it, and you write part of it one day, and maybe you you know you're not really sure about it, and you put it aside um, for another day, or even sometimes years. It could even take uh, a couple of years to finally bring a poem to its to its uh, ultimate state. I know in, in the book you spoke about artists, and um, artists who thrive are are the artists who have a good routine, and you link that to kind of scaffolding and. And the people like Beethoven, who kind of kept this schedule and regiment, he ultimately, through the the regiment, he was able to um, to produce really remarkable work, really glorious work. It actually reminds me of uh, of a teaching about uh, the, they often link the two sections called Matos and Masse. Matos means like a staff, and Masse means travels. So a, a staff is something that's kind of just rigid and dead and lifeless. And traveling is vigorous and exciting. But sometimes to, to get to traveling, to travel in your relationship, to travel in your spiritual life, you need the matos, you need the staff, you need the discipline, you need the kind of dry, yeah. everyday uh, movements. And that's why those part, those two Torah sections are often connected, matos and, and masse. Is so, it true for you in your process? Uh, in, my, in my poetry process? Yeah. I wish, honestly, that I was more disciplined <laughs> and that I... I could just sit down and have a time that I write. Life just takes you in so many directions and, and pulls you in so many places, so many responsibilities that it's hard for me to be disciplined in that kind of way. I do know that when I when I do just sit down to write um, and I try to have that discipline, usually something um, positive happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I do wish that I was I was more I was a, be- a better poet. I wish I was a more observant poet, a more religious poet. That <laughs> 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 th- th- I think I would I would produce more work and and yeah I would you, you you do you definitely see that the end result of a poem that's um, strong that's good often is very different than when it started. 
In other mm. words, when you started working at it, you had to go through all kinds of revisions and stages, certain poems at least, certain revisions, and you have to ask people because you don't have the objectivity to assess its quality, and you ask friends, where do I need to add an image? Where's the weak moment in this poem? So it, there's definitely a lot of... Um, input you need to get from others. Maybe also in a relationship, it's good. The, the, the problem is that um, it's hard to write a good poem. Well, despite the appearances, it's hard to write a good poem. And when you sit down to write a poem, you so badly want to write a good poem. So that when you're writing it, you lose your objectivity and you think that what you're writing is good. And it, mm -hmm. and it may be good and it may not be good. Maybe it's, you know, similarly in a relationship, you know, we, we get very... Um, stuck in our in our emotions and our ways of thinking of things it's good to to have a friend to talk to or or uh, a mentor so that we don't get lost in our own our own thinking just like in a poem you might think this is a great poem but you're kind of just stuck in your own world and in your own head um in, you ever in... find yourself hesitant to i know that i that i have a struggle with this sometimes with 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 writing or anything that i'm you know kind of trying to produce do you, do you ever have a struggle to show it to someone else in the fear of that that kind of objectivity coming back in a way that you know is not really what you want to hear yeah yeah you especially it's it's kind of uh, demoralizing when you feel like you wrote something good and then you give it to somebody but the truth is you you don't think that way because you're you're so self-assured when you think it's good that you think that your friend's going to think it's good too so that, that that's why you really get shell-shocked and blindsided when they tell you it's not really that good it, it's a remarkable it's it's remarkable how how much we lack uh, the objectivity that's why also it's a good practice just to put it aside for a couple days and then right. when you come back to it you you see it in, in a fresh light. And I think so, all of this is such a such a helpful analogy to our avodas Hashem and to our marriages, right? To our relationship with God and with and with spouses, because that same kind of really really blind subjectivity can set in, and maybe that's a big part of why in Hasidus and in in Judaism in general, there's such an emphasis on having a mentor, having a rebbe. Right. Uh, having a friend, uh, you know, having that that kind of sichas chaverim dialogue with friends and kind of getting that input, uh, and I guess to the point I was bringing up, it's like m overcoming that fear of getting the feedback <laughs> that we don't want, uh, and then I guess from the from the way you're looking at it is, you know, I guess overcoming the the assurance, you know, the the, the sense of confidence, right? So in, right. in one in one direction or another, uh, but 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 really getting that that input. From, from outside sources about the, the things that are really oftentimes so personal that we naturally wouldn't. So our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, the way that we're living, we we don't necessarily naturally, uh, you know, seek that out. But right. but but there's you know there's so much in, in Judaism that 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 encourages that of us. And so kind of looking at all of this through the artist lens, like you're saying, mm. it's interesting to hear about the significance and the importance for the artistic process uh, of the objective outsider input. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely vital. Um, you know, even if you've written books and you're far along in your career, every poet is they're part of like a workshop with fellow poets or they have a friend that they show to. There's a friend that I have, fortunate to have, his name is David Kaplan. Um, he's also a poet and uh, a Hasidic uh, man, and he is a great resource for me because he's a good friend. He kind of understands where I'm coming from. 
and he helped me tremendously with 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 my books and um, giving me insights and perspective. I think there's less at stake in asking a poetry mentor for help than asking uh, uh, another mentor for in your personal life for for assistance in your personal. Life. It is a scary thing. It's definitely a scary thing, um, and it's embarrassing a lot of times because there's certain you know. Uh, areas of our life maybe we're embarrassed about and we present ourselves in a certain way in the public eye um, and we don't want people to see us in an unfavorable light but it's very very important to be honest I think in those areas there's many times where I in my own marriage thought things were supposed to be a certain way and I was convinced and I was right and it had to be that way and then I I spoke with a mentor and and, and, and they said no you're wrong (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, and now, again, a mentor doesn't mean you just listen to this person and they just tell you yes or no. You you speak it out with them and you talk about your concerns. But but we're not objective people, you know. We're 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 not. We're we're emotionally. Um, we have a lot of emotional baggage. We have a lot of um, issues from our upbringing and certain bodies. We, we just are not objective, in the way, especially about our own our own situations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been, and even things that I've advised other people about, and then when I had the same experience in my in my own life, I wasn't I wasn't able to follow my own advice. Right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, trust me, I have that all the time. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, when we it, get it, off this call, I have about five hours straight of doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's so helpful just to to be humble and realize we all need help. And in truth, it makes life much better, much much less fought with doubt. That that's what the Pirkei Avos says: "Say the Chorav, you know, establish a, a mentor for yourself, the Stalik Minasafik, and you're moved out. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more joyous." or gratifying than the removal of doubt. Mm-hmm. Doubt weighs on us so fiercely, so intensely, um, to to know that you respect somebody and you could at least talk it out with them, even if you don't necessarily um, see, see eye to eye in what they're telling you in this particular area. It's great to, to, to have a mentor. Um, it, it, interestingly, even in my poetry life, I have a, a, a poetry mentors and I have spiritual mentors, and sometimes there's certain work that I that I write where I wonder if I should publish it, if it's fit, you know, for for public consumption. Um, and sometimes I myself am a stronger censor than my spiritual mentor. My spiritual mentor might say, "Well, you no, know, you're being too prudish, or you're being um, too strict, and really, this is work that you should publish. Maybe it will help somebody." So even in that area. A spiritual mentor could even help in, 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 in your poetry life. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, before we started the recording of this, we were we were talking just briefly for a moment about the Mitla Rebbe and the son of the Alter Rebbe, the second uh, Rebbe of Chabad. And one of the things that he emphasized the tremendous amount, to my, to my understanding, uh, in addition to the general Hasidic uh, emphasis on connection to a spiritual mentor, to a tzaddik, to a Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe emphasized the the peer to peer relationships of that. His dream, I think, they, the way they, they describe it is that his ultimate dream was that two Jews would meet right. in the street and they would have conversations about their avodas Hashem and about right. Hasidus, and they would right. be talking about here's what I'm working on and here's right. how this is going, and they would have that kind of dialogue and that openness with each other. Right, right. I think he said that when two Hasidim encounter each other, they should. Be to- one should be talking about Atik and one should be talking about Ara, which are two <laughs> right. two very deep levels in 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 this divine strata called Kesser. 
which mm-hmm. is God's uh, delight and God's will. <laughs> and, and they should be talking about that when they meet each other. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, 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 certainly um, Lubavitcher Rabbi, um, in addition to uh, studying his teachings, he he asked everybody a very heartfelt and strong request. Everybody should have their own individual mentor that they call and speak to um, every so often and just catch up and ask ask questions. I've asked my mentor many questions about marriage, about child rearing, about ca- careers, and it's it's really been so helpful. Yeah. As you, you quoted Perkovus before, it's, uh, you know, si- similarly, the, it says, you know, and you mentioned before the, the embarrassment of sometimes getting that feedback or sharing mm-hmm. that personal stuff. And in, in Perkovus, it also says, right, that right. the person who allows that embarrassment to, to impinge on the choices they make uh, won't, won't be able to learn, won't be able to grow and, and explore that. I'm curious mm-hmm. just to, to loop back to something you said earlier about the different ways that poems evolve for you. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they have, they start with this image you said, and then it kind of right. flows from there. In when, when, when the poems kind of travel on that course, on that path, is there still a lot of editing that happens afterwards? Or do those are more kind of come out in, in just like a spontaneous inspiration? It's not as much. I could read one. Should I read one of the poems that came up? Sure. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So this is the a poem. first poem you read. Where where can people find that? The oh, first that one? that um, is I'm it's in a manuscript I'm working on. Oh, okay. Um, so, um, but th- this poem was in my first book. It's called God's Optimism. And it's called Balchuvas at the Mikvah. So uh, uh, a men's mikvah. Balchuva is obviously of somebody who didn't grow up in a kind of religious uh, framework, and they adopted that later, or maybe they did grow up that way. They left, and then they came back. And the mikvah is uh, the ritual bath. And in, in Hasidic communities, uh, men uh, immerse in the ritual bath before prayer. So this is kind of a scene in the yeshiva where you have um, these men who who um, immersed in Jewish life later on, and they have the um, they have uh, we'll see they have tattoos from their past, um, and tattoos of course are are um, forbidden in, in in Jewish law. So it's called Balchuvas at the mikvah. Sometimes you see them in the dressing area of the ritual bath. Young bearded men unbuttoning their white shirts, slipping out of their black trousers, until, standing entirely naked, they are betrayed by the tattoos of their past life. A ring of fire climbing up a leg, an eagle whose feathery wingspan spreads the width of the chest, or worse, the scripted name of a woman other than one's wife. Then, holding only a towel, they begin once more the walk past the others in the dressing room. The rabbi they will soon sit before in Talmud class, men with the last names of the first Hasidic families, almost everyone devout since birth. And with each step they curse the poverty that keeps the dark ink etched in their skin, until finally they descend the stairs of the purifying water, and beneath the translucent liquid appear once again like the next man, who, in all his days, has probably never made a sacrifice as endearing to God. So, so that poem uh, is kind of just a, a rendering of what I saw. I remember being at the mikvah and seeing young men with uh, very pronounced tattoos, and it was really a striking image to me. Um, 
you know, a really uh, incredible juxtaposition to see these people going to the mikvah and they have these tattoos from uh, their life before they before they inserted themselves into this new life. Um, and I remember the image just being very, very striking. And I didn't write the poem for a while, but when I sat down to write the poem, it came very quickly and I didn't revise it, revise it too much. That's really a poet's dream. Mm-hmm. A poet's dream is for, for the poem to just come like that. And that's, you know, something that's striking. And, 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 but there's other poems that I, I can't say that were that that came that as easily. Mm-hmm. But even the ability, so I'm wondering, the ability to write a poem that that amazing and really breathtaking in, in a moment and in a flash was 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 there a lot of training and development that had to take place before that, or was that something <laughs> you were just naturally able to do, like you know, forever? Uh, I mean, I went to school for poetry, studied poetry. I read a lot of poetry, um, but I, there's probably some kind of natural inclination that a person has that makes them want to write poetry. I do right. think everybody should write poetry, and everybody would benefit from poetry. A lot of people think that they don't like poetry because they've only seen poetry that's presented like it's like a riddle that they have to decode. But a lot of contemporary poetry is very accessible, uh, and the meaning that's offered is the meaning on the page, and you don't have to decode it. Um, so I think when people understand that, they realize that they could write poetry too, and they could tell their stories. Just like journaling is cathartic. Uh, everybody wants to tell their story, and it's helpful for them to tell their story. Um, but yeah, there's probably a certain inclination that a person has. Um, I, I also think that um, living an introspective life probably helps you write poetry. Um, and it's probably studying a lot of Torah and Chassidus or, or whatever you're studying kind of gives you an angle on things so that when you see them, you filter and process the experience through that angle. I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about certain theological ideas when I wrote this poem, but hopefully the theological ideas that I study do become a part of my worldview. And so that when I see an event like this, it... it um, it, that worldview and those studies impact how I how I see it. Yeah, I've, and yeah. again, the you know part of why I'm I'm focusing so much on on kind of coming back again and again to your process of, of mm-hmm. poetry is because I'm I'm really looking at this as as a mushal as a as a mm-hmm. framework for for kind of living a poetic life, right? Living the artistic mm-hmm. life, which mm-hmm. as you you framed early on in this conversation as being right. a way of looking at the regular world in a way that 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 shines more that there's more there's more there than just the quick kind of utilitarian right look right. at the world the technical look at the world versus what we're calling let's say the more artistic or or poetic right. way of of noticing and observing and experiencing all the phenomenon that are already around us right yeah and i think that dovetails with judaism you know judaism is telling us to pay attention to the wondrousness of the world uh, pay attention to, to divine providence. Pay attention to uh, every small moment. It's it's all divinely orchestrated. There's no moment that's superfluous. I, I think maybe you could even take it a, a step deeper. Um, in in the midrash, it tells us that God created the whole world because He wants a home in the lowest realm. That's a famous idea in the midrash, and Chabad Chassidus seized upon that idea and took it as its thesis that the whole purpose of existence is God wants a home in this lowest realm. And that that's why, maybe touches on what we spoke about earlier, that's why Judaism is so physically oriented. It's not a, a religion of celibacy, it's not a religion of asceticism. Our daily rituals are so steeped in physicality. 
Um, but but beyond that idea, so that when you do so when you do a, a command like God instructs with the physical world, there's an idea of mysticism that a divine light is drawn down into that physical item and it becomes holy, and that's God dwelling in this lowest realm, God dwelling in the, in the physical world. And in the Messianic era, once we've done all this work of purifying and refining the physicality through connecting it to these divine acts, then we'll see the divine openly manifest in the physicality. Um, but but another way to understand this idea that God wants a home in the lowest realm, and this I think relates to certainly to therapy and psychology, is that everybody in their own life has high moments, and they have relative low moments. They have moments where they feel like they're failing and they're disappointed in themselves, and then they have moments where they're thriving and they're successful. And and the way that we traditionally look at it is that we say the moments that I'm successful is is good. The moments where I'm struggling or failing is problematic, and I maybe I'm a disappointment to my friends and maybe even to God. I'm a disappointment to God because I'm not thriving in this area. I have this neuroses, I have this failing, I have this obsession. And we look at ourselves and want to say, God's not happy with me in that in that area. If I only didn't have that problem, I would be much better um, uh, servant of God. But in this theology of the lowest realm, the idea is really that that in that issue that you're having is really precisely where God wants to live. That issue that you're having is perhaps your whole purpose. This is why your soul descended to deal with this issue. The things that you're um, thriving at is kind of like a gift from God. God made you good at those things, or He made it amenable so that you could work at them and you'll be good at them. The things that you're struggling with are really perhaps your life's purpose. And when you try to deal with them and try to overcome them, there you make a home for God in the lowest realm, in the lowest of the low. The phrasing that the altar abuses the Tanya in chapter 36 is the lowest point to which nothing is lower. He's talking about the physical world, but another way to apply it is in your own life. My lowest moments in my life are actually the opportunities to fulfill my life's purpose. That's really where God wants to dwell. And I can make God dwell there if I can keep going, you know, keep having faith, keep working at it, not giving up. The Alter Rebbe speaks about um, a person who maybe even has the same challenge their whole life. They have the same issue, and they never graduate from it. Now, you know, in, in traditional Western culture, we'll say that person's a failure. They never got over their issue. But the Alter Rebbe says that that person is a success. They just have to keep fighting and keep, don't give up the battle. Keep working at it. And, 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 and maybe that's why he was created. Uh, that's his whole purpose. So uh, I, I think that's like a, also um, that idea informs a lot of my poetry, where sometimes I speak about struggles that I'm experiencing in my poetry, sometimes even very personal family areas. Which yeah, it's is, one of the it's one of the one of the aspects or themes of your poetry that I've really uh, appreciated most is really just the, the vulnerability. There's so much uh, personal um uh, revelation expression that, that 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 you share so generously really in, in what you write yeah that, that was a question should i be sharing some of those things um my feeling and maybe i'm wrong it was just my instinct that that this speaks to this idea that sharing those things speak to the idea that that in the struggle is actually perhaps the whole purpose um and and, and if you can come through it um then you've made a home for god in that lowest space um so that kind of inspired me to, to, to write this work, to do these things. Sometimes I even express uh, doubt. 
doubt in the divine. Um, and some people would say, how could you write about that? Why would you write that? Isn't that inappropriate? But I think that you have to also look at the person writing as a kind of commentary in the poetry too. If I'm going on, <laughs> if I'm still living this lifestyle, then obviously it's a kind of commentary on how you should read the poem as well. And maybe that also speaks to, to what we, we started the conversation with. Like, there's going to be low moments in a relationship, uh, but that, that doesn't mean it's a bad relationship. That That's the the, per, the moment that you can really actually encounter your spouse in a very deep and profound way. When everything is working out and everything is going well, you're probably just seeing yourself reflected in your spouse or your spouse is validating and reiterating and mirroring all the things that you like. When there's a moment of conflict, that's a moment that you could actually have a connection um, with your spouse as opposed to with, you, with yourself through your spouse, so to speak. That's there's really no revelation. That's a really profound, profound way of looking at it. Wow. Right, yeah, and that's the idea of an essence. You, you say, I, I, I don't want Gan Eden, I don't want Olamab, I don't want revelation, I don't want to feel good necessarily, I want to connect connect to you. Yeah. And, and, and again, the, the, the counterintuitive point is, you know, we, we shouldn't be looking for that, but it always does come back to us. And when we live that way, we, we, we ultimately get the, the most profound joy. Because we're humble, and when we're humble, I think we make ourselves a vessel for all kinds of, of blessings and connections to people. Um, yeah. So if I could just kind of summarize, the, I mean, yeah. there's so many uh, kind of little insights that you've that you've shared that I think are, are so profound. So I don't want to minimize any of that. But I guess the, the, the biggest kind of general piece that I'm walking away with from this conversation is that it is so striking and counterintuitive that of all the guests I've had on this series of this podcast, the first poet that I've had on is the person who chose to speak about the chapter of routine, discipline, scaffolding, and yeah. uh, mundanity, which is just culturally the opposite of the way we think about artists that's and right. poets. But really what you're saying is hagufa. Like, that's that's the point. Because the artistic way of life is not about the extraordinary, per se. It's about the ordinary things and looking at them through the artist's view, the poetic way of living, which sees a, a flower, a regular flower, or a regular situation at the supermarket, or a regular morning at the mikvah, but sees something really holy, really beautiful, really extraordinary within that which would just seem so regular. And and that really is so much of of what we're trying to do in our lives when we live when we live well is the things that are the day to day, the regular but to be able to pause and notice and observe and be enchanted by it and, and, and find the wonder and the curiosity and, and, and that which is extraordinary, uh, but within the very regular, simple situations of our lives. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So uh, in, in closing, is there, is there maybe one more poem that, that uh, for whatever reason, uh, speaks to you right now to share with us? And then we'll... Uh, yeah, we'll I'll read another poem that perhaps, that perhaps reiterates the, the, this point about how what's exciting is not always um, means that you're connecting to God or the other person. It might be kind of connecting to yourself. So it's called The Deed, again, referencing the idea of the physical act. Um, and the poem kind of, it has three sections. It kind of compares meditation, which might be gratifying and spiritual, to an uninspired mitzvah act. And it ultimately argues that the uninspired mitzvah act actually surpasses the meditation. Okay, so it's called the deed. One, sunlight pours through the library window. 
Our Snowy Drive for My Family, I grade expository essays on the overlap between Buddhism and psychology to pay for my children's cheder tuition so they can learn texts in the holy tongue which offer a different approach to happiness. Raised in a home where the Marx brothers played anarchistic pranks as background to family dinners, Roy Orbison's falsetto floating up from my father's Danish speaker, I tried to become a chassid. In which texts and whose voices do I carry as I shuttle between yeshiva and classes at the university? Between driving, grading papers, the children waking us each night, so little time for thinking, for learning, for love. Two, action, Rebbe taught, is the most essential thing, the deed prescribed by the infinite one, the only highway beyond the finite. The heart of a man meditating in front of a lake soars only as high as the human heart can climb. Yet, because it is a divine command, when he hears the chauffeur after the others have roused him, a worshiper who'd fallen asleep in the middle of services climbs the ladder, embraces the one without end. Three, perhaps this is why there are so few pious Jews in poetry, that profession of rowing through the rivers of the heart with oars made of memory and sadness. Four, the walls of the Rebbe's office absorbed sadder stories than any other room in the world. His heart was so full of affection, he cried in a synagogue full of bearded men in Brooklyn whenever he spoke of God's hiddenness. On my drive home tonight, snow circles under streetlights as the sedan ahead of me inches forward. My wife calls to say two of the children have done something she cannot repeat over the phone. When she hangs up a staticky recording of a discourse the Rebbe delivered decades ago, resumes. The worshiper must serve the divine, even if he feels or understands nothing. No further comments. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's a great Thank pleasure. you so much. Really, really a pleasure. Really amazing. Appreciate it so much. Sure. you enjoyed this, please follow us on WhatsApp, YouTube, or Instagram. All our podcast series can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd love to hear from you, so please reach out with questions, comments, or suggestions, or to be added to our WhatsApp groups. You can reach us through email using yakov, Y-A-K-O-V, dot attached at gmail.com, or on WhatsApp at 773-888-2413.